this week, the comics guys explain Steve Ditko. Thank you, Ben. Yes, this time we'll be looking at the life of one of uh, comics' most important artists, uh, Steve Ditko. So why don't you tell us about a little bit about where he came from, Derek? Sure. Steve Ditko uh, is born in uh, November, November 2nd, 1927 in Johnston, Pennsylvania. And Johnston, Pennsylvania is like the archetypal Pennsylvania steel town, right? It's like so you know, perfectly archetypal. It's literally referred to in a Bruce Springsteen song, <laughs> right? I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's that kind of, you know, just like blue collar working town. Um, his parents uh, were first generation Czech immigrants after World War I. Uh, they came to America basically after, you know, Austria-Hungary collapsed as a country, moved into uh, in Pennsylvania. Um, and his dad was a carpenter for the steel mills. Um, so like he actually like built, you know, like equipment and, and wooden tools and that kind of thing for the steel mill workers, you know, to use in their day. He had, uh, Stephen was, uh, the second of four kids. He has a brother and two sisters and, uh, you know, he has a pretty ordinary life, uh, at growing up, right. He's, he's 15 or he's 14 when, uh, world war two starts. Right, so he spends basically his entire time in high school assuming that he's going to go to war, right? Like that—that's where you know they don't know when the war is going to end or anything, right? So he spends his entire kind of you know early teenage years with the assumption that he's going to go fight in the war, um, and when he graduates, it's like right at the end of the war, as it turns out. Uh, but he's already planned to go into the army, so when he graduates, he literally goes. Uh, it, straight into the army and goes to Germany and serves there. Uh, and he's there for almost five years. Uh, most of the time, I mean, he's, you know, he's a soldier. He's, uh, you know, a, a private in the, you know, infantry. But while he's there, uh, he kind of, you know, draws on the fact that he's a, a pretty good cartoonist. He's a pretty good artist. And he gets a gig drawing cartoons for the German army newspaper the local you know like american uh, army soldiers in germany their their local newspaper and he just he decides he really enjoys it he's very good at it uh you know all the other soldiers think his stuff is funny and you know he has a very kind of like stylish cartoony style to what he's drawing but he doesn't know anything uh, about, you know, like the art of making comics or anything, right? He wasn't really a big comic book guy as a kid. He'd read them, but it was not a thing that he, you know, kind of like cared about or obsessed about or thought he could do professionally. But he gets such a good response to the work that he does in Germany for the, for the newspaper that when he comes back uh, in 1950 with the GI Bill, uh, he gets. Uh, he uses his uh, the GI Bill to get himself into the relatively new uh, school in New York City called the Cartoonists and Illustrators School, uh, which will go on to be you know much more famous. It changes it changes its name in the fifties uh, to the School of Visual Arts, which is the the version of it most people know. Um, but at the time that he was going, it was very new uh, and. Uh, the artists and the, the classes there were much smaller. Um, there was only about uh, 60 artists total in his class. Uh, one of the other uh, artists that wound up in his class that also wound up working with him later was Joe Sinnott, uh, who became one of Marvel's kind of like most famous inkers. Uh, 
Uh, but while he was there, he took all kinds of classes from Bern Hogarth, uh, who was the founder of the school, and from Jerry Robinson. And Jerry Robinson obviously was one of the most important Batman artists from DC, who was kind of like taking this side gig teaching at the school while he was professionally still doing Batman. Um, Jerry Robinson is the guy who created the Joker. He basically created Robin. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was a tremendously influential uh, uh, Batman uh, illustrator. And Robinson himself was a big influence on Ditko, you know, early on uh, and, and uh, like kind of like developing his style. Uh, so he, you know, spends two or three years, uh, you know, at the school and winds up getting his first jobs in 1953 professionally. Uh, he sells a couple of uh, comics to the various imprints of a, a publisher called Key Publications. And Key Publications did a bunch of uh, anthology titles of like science fiction, romance, and mostly horror. That was like the big thing at the time. And so he would do a lot of these, you know, kind of like six or eight page short pieces that, you know, like with some kind of like twist ending, you know, in the horror uh comics right like say somebody would be revealed at the end of the story to have been a ghost all along or something like that Ooh. right and, uh, yeah exactly that kind of thing and he once again he was really good at those right. right like his twist stories were more were funnier and grosser and like just generally more entertaining than most of them so his but key was not a big seller and it was very difficult to kind of like get noticed while you were working over there. Um, so he gets a job uh, in 53, 54, working at Jack Kirby and Joe Simon's studio. And if you go back to the Kirby episodes there, this is during the, the, the Crestwood days, basically, in the, in the Kirby episode. Um, and he gets a job working as a background anchor and like general assistant uh, for Kirby and Simon. Um, he does a lot of kind of, you know, like fill in work on other artists stuff. And this was a very kind of like fertile place for designers at the time. Uh, some of the people that he worked with while he was there who were doing the same thing that he did were Ben Oda and, uh, Joe Orlando, uh, were both kind of like coworkers with him. And a lot of the work that he did was uh, cleaning up and doing background inking and you know like fill-in uh, uh, gigs for Mort Meskin. And Mort Meskin was another guy who did these kind of urban stories, right? They had a lot of guys in suits in you know cityscapes with like shadows and you know uh, the moonlight, you know, like uh, making like interesting lighting, uh, you know, uh, scenes in dark alleys where mobsters are confronting each other, kind of thing. Um, and you, you know, once again, Ditko turns out to be really strong at that stuff. Uh, he also starts around this time doing freelance pieces for Charlton. Charlton will be one of his favorite places to work for decades. Um, because they let him do pretty much whatever he wants, right? Like uh, Charlton was kind of like famously underpaid uh, its people, right? Like you, you make a lot more money working at DC or working at uh, Fawcett or at National or any of those other uh, publishers, but the editors had, you know, like a, a, a much stronger hand there. At Charlton, the, you know, they paid less.
us, but they basically let him do whatever he wanted. And Ditko was a big one about doing whatever he wanted, right? So he was willing to take less money to have the freedom to basically, you know, do stories the way he felt like it. Uh, so he would continue to be associated with them and friendly with them for decades. Uh, at the time that he started there, Al Fago, uh, who used to run Timely or used to like manage the Timely offices, was uh, managing Charlton. And uh, Dick Giordano uh, was a kid there working at the same time that, that Ditko was. Uh, we keep referring to Ditko like he was a kid at this point, but keep in mind at this point, he's already 27, 28 years old, right? Like his time in the army meant that he was older than most of the young artists that he was working with, right? Like he broke in late. And so he was always kind of like the older brother to a bunch of young artists, you know, like uh, working in the, in the offices there, right? He was working with a bunch of 21, 22 year olds when he was 27 or 28. Uh, and so he kind of had like the, the reputation of being, you know, like the, the one the bosses could rely on, right? Like he was the guy who wasn't going to screw around in the office too much. Uh, and, you know, was, uh, was somebody you could leave alone and kind of like he would be professional and take care of his stuff. Um, like key publications, Charlton did a lot of sci-fi and horror because that was what was big in the mid fifties. And Ditko kind of got a reputation that a lot of the Charlton stuff was done to be shocking, right? They had a lot of blood. They had a lot of guts and gore and, you know, people getting their heads chopped off with axes and that kind of thing. And that wasn't Ditko's style. You know, he could do that if he needed to. He could do that like when he was when he was asked to. But once again, left to his own stuff, his stuff was just a little smarter and a little trickier, less gory, more, you know, kind of like twisty endings, more kind of uh, like Twilight Zone, you know, like reveals in the final page kind of things. He would work with scripts from people like Joe Gill. Uh, Joe Gill had also been at the Timely uh, offices back in during World War II and had come over to Charlton uh, with Fago. And Gill kind of famously, well, not famously, but like he was he was basically to Charlton what Stanley was to the early days of Marvel, right? He wrote everything, but he only would do kind of like the scripting after the fact, right? Like the artists at Charlton had a great deal of freedom to basically plot the stories and then they would hand mostly completed artwork to Joe Gill, who would then write the, you know, write the script, write the panels, write the dialogue, et cetera, et cetera, to the stuff that the artists had already done. This became known later, you know, in, in the sixties as the Marvel style of doing things, right? Because both Kirby and Ditko liked working that way that's how they worked with kirby and that uh, that's how they worked with stan lee and so that became kind of the house style at marvel but really it was at charlton that ditko learned to do it because he was working with joe gill and it's really kind of a it's a misnomer to say that it's the marvel style because marvel certainly didn't invent it so ditko was working like i said but these 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 uh, various places uh you know doing freelance work for a bunch of different people but then in 1954 late 54 uh, he got tuberculosis, which was, you know, kind of a big deal at the time. It was, it was, it was going around in the fifties at that point, and so he uh, took months off. He, I think, he took off like six or eight months to go back to his parents' house to recuperate because it had hit him very hard. Right. Um, 
And so he kind of like, you know, was, was, was out of the scene for a little bit. When he came back, uh, Charlton kind of desperately needed him because Fawcett had gone out of the comics business while he was gone. And uh, Fawcett went out of the comics business. If you want to go check out our Captain Marvel episode, it's this is basically the time that Fawcett has lost its, uh, you know, or has has abandoned its lawsuit about Captain Marvel versus Superman. And they've decided it's just not worth the fight anymore and have basically quit doing comics at all. Uh, and so most of the non-superhero, non-Captain Marvel stuff that Fawcett was doing was picked up for you know pennies on the dollar by charlton and that was exactly charlton's way of doing things right like that you know these were respected modestly popular titles that had like some fans charlton saw the chance to get them cheap and did right so um so they suddenly had more comics than they had creators to work with right they, they needed to go out and hire more people just to keep churning out these comics and they had all of these anthologies that uh, needed to be filled up and they dumped a bunch of it on steve ditko's desk as soon as he came back from you know having recovered from his tuberculosis and most of these titles uh you know became solid sellers like strange suspense stories and uh, my particular favorite title uh, for which is This Magazine is Haunted, <laughs> right? He was doing all of these kind of like fabulous, you know, the horror stories. But now like the code is coming along, right? And now it's now like we can do ghost stories, but we can't do blood and guts and gore because the, you know, the government's mad at us, right? Right. So Charlton, before, like af after uh, DC kind of like brings back the superhero, uh, with the Flash, with the Barry Allen Flash, Charlton is actually one of the first people to try to copy them. And so Joe Gill and uh, Ditko worked together to create Charlton's first superhero uh, in 1960. So that's, you know, before uh, Marvel has kind of like kicked in, before Fantastic Four number one, uh, Charlton is already trying to, you know, like cop some of, of, of DC's sales. And so, and, and Ditko's never worked on a superhero before, right? This is brand new to him. He's never, he has no, you know, kind of like a, a background with this genre. But he and Joe Gill create a superhero uh, who will be called Captain Adam. And the story of Captain Adam, the original story of Captain Adam, is that uh, a scientist uh, is working on an experimental rocket, uh, that is going to, you know, like take people into space eventually. And uh, he is accidentally trapped in it, trapped inside during its test, right? And nobody knows that he's in there. Uh, so when they launch this experimental rocket, he's still inside and, and nobody knew. And so the rocket makes it to like the upper atmosphere and explodes. And our poor hero, this, you know, Professor Adam, uh, is basically atomized. Right, he is just kind of like blown into you know microscopic pieces, but his mind still somehow remains, and he is able to kind of like recreate and reform his newly radioactive body, and forms it into a, a humanoid form that has incredible nuclear-related superpowers. Right. And of course, if any of this sounds familiar to you, it's because this is basically Doctor Manhattan. Right. This is what Alan Moore is referring to uh, when he does Dr. Manhattan in The Watchmen, these original stories that Ditko and Gill did for Captain Adam. Right. That's the character that, Man that Manhattan is based on. Right. Uh, unfortunately, 
uh, for Charlton anyway, Captain Adam is not a big hit. It doesn't actually, you know, it doesn't sell. There are between 60 and 61, they published nine Captain Adam stories uh, before sales are so bad that they just decide, you know what, that didn't really work. Shame, because it was cool, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, Captain Adam will, of course, come back later. This is not the the, the last we'll hear of him, obviously. Uh, but at the time, you know, this had uh, the, this this didn't work, but it was Ditko's first try at a superhero. Mm-hmm. Around this time, by the late fifties, uh, Stan Lee had uh, was working at Atlas. Right was and if you go back to the the the, the history of Marvel, this is the time when uh, Atlas basically had had gone through all of its financial difficulties and had uh, been like forced to lay off many of their artists because Stanley had kind of like overpurchased uh, back art from them, right? And then Martin Goodman comes into the the uh, Marvel offices, comes into the Timely offices and sees all of the art that Lee has like in the, you know, in, in, in the back cupboards in the in the closet and says you can't hire anybody new until you use all of this art, basically. Uh, and so when Lee finally kind of like plows through a bunch of that and gets permission from Goodman to rehire people, he brings in Ditko as one of the people that he can do, right? And once again, Ditko is like, as long as you leave me alone, let me do kind of like my kind of stuff. The fact that you're not paying as well as some of the other publishers doesn't really matter to me. I, I will work for, you know, like relatively low rates comparatively. Right. He's more interested in his freedom. Yeah. And he's, you know, he, he he's fast. He can like, you know, like pick up his, his page rate doesn't need to be that high for him to make a living. Um, he isn't married. He doesn't have kids. He doesn't have like an enormous amount of expenses. He's pretty much Stanley's like ideal employee at that point, right? <laughs> you know. Um, so he's, you know, he's he's developed a style by this point. By this time, you know, it's 1959, 1960. He's a professional. He's doing this full time. He's in his early 30s, and he has developed a style that is unique. Even though you can tell the people that had that influenced him. Right, you can see Mort Meskin in his work. You can see Will Eisner in his work. You can see Kubert, right? But his stuff is still very distinct. You can pick a Ditko panel out. You know, you don't need to know that he he doesn't need to sign it, right? His characters are scaled to be humans, right? Like he's, he's like the complete opposite of Jack Kirby, where every character is this like hugely muscled. Uh, you know, just uh, idealized human figure, right? Like his characters are ordinary sized and shaped. They may be skinny, they may be fat, they may be, you know, like uh, uh, whatever, right? Like there's a there's a range of them. And instead of like these muscular poses that Kirby would have for his for his heroes, his characters all have this kind of like rubbery agility. Mm-hmm. Right. They all seem like they can move. They all seem like they're pretty bendy. And, you know, like he's uh, Ditko will do like interesting poses, even if it's not an action shot. Ditko is kind of the master of portraying mood with like body posture and that sort of thing. Right. Like his faces are very expressive. The way characters kind of like stand or lean or whatever very much tells you what's on their mind. Right. Like he has a a very visual and like expressive style. Um, and he can do both like wild and crazy 
you know, sci-fi or horror or, you know, like magic stuff. And he can also do like realistic street scenes. He can do kind of like, you know, like the urban gangster stories and that sort of thing. Right. Um, interestingly, and this is a thing that, that that's weird, even by 1960, his stuff looked a little bit dated. It looked old fashioned. And part of that was because Ditko's characters all continue to dress like they're in the late forties. <laughs> and even in 1960, that was a little weird, right? He keeps doing it uh, basically until he dies. <laughs> you know, it just becomes part of the uh, of the Ditko thing, right? Like his characters wear fedoras, you know, and their suits are cut to be like 1940s, and his women wear pencil skirts and bobby socks. Uh, you know, right up until 2018, he's still drawing them that way, right? <laughs> and you know, it became part of just the Ditko style, right? That it, it was, you know, you could tell that a piece was by him. Right. So while he's doing this, so he's working, uh, you know, full time for between them for Charlton and for uh, Atlas, et cetera. And he's living in New York city. One of the guys that he went to art school with who became a close friend of his is a guy named Eric Stanton and Eric Stanton got divorced from his first wife in 1958 and talked Ditko basically into getting an apartment with him that they could get a, you know, a relatively nice apartment on 43rd street and eighth Avenue in New York city. Uh, that they would have like the room between them to have like kind of a studio, right? Like they'd have two bedrooms and then like a big living room that they could treat as a studio because they were both working professionally as artists. However, while Ditko is, you know, like taking off in comics, Stanton's professional work in art is basically doing uh, underground cartoons and like bondage fetish comics, Right for like fantasy erotica publishers of like the late fifties and the early sixties, guys like Irving Claw, Edward Mishkin, uh, Leonard Bertman, doing basically softcore porn, and the two of them would just work side by side. They were they were close friends. Now anybody who knows Steve Ditko personally, it's kind of like hard to imagine, right? Like like Ditko having anything to do with anything that was like remotely sexual, right? Um, and he would deny later that he had ever uh, worked on any of Stanton's stuff, that he had ever worked together with him. Once again, that's pretty hard to believe. If you look at Stanton's pieces, you can find characters in the backgrounds. Uh, you know, like not the maybe maybe not the the main character who is doing like the sexy action in the you know center of the panel, but like somebody in the background, and they look just like Steve Ditko characters they look exactly like the kind of people who would be standing around watching spider-man do something right and so stanton says oh yeah we used to work on each other's stuff all the time right like you know if one of us was on a deadline the other one would just kind of like step in and do some backgrounds do some inking do whatever was needed to like get it out the door um ditko like i said later denied that that was ever the case but it's yeah, you know, it's it, it it certainly looks like he did, right? Um, and as far as Ditko's stuff, Stanton insists once uh, uh, Ditko will admit that Stanton actually did help him with some of his superhero stuff, right? That he eventually like did some work on Spider-Man and Doctor Strange and that sort of thing. Uh, Stanton insists uh, that while Ditko did almost all of the work on Spider-Man, the whole bit about the webs coming out of the wrists. Stanton says that's him, that he, he invented that. 
once again, Ditko denies that. I, you know, we have no way to 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 tell uh, which of them is telling the truth on it. Um, but they lived together as these two kind of like quirky, you know, like artists uh, for more than ten years. And the only reason they stopped living together was because Stanton got married a second time and basically moved out and Ditko was you know left with this enormous apartment fortunately by that time Ditko you know had had a couple of smash hits and uh, had the money to pay for it on his own uh once Stanton left one of the one of the problems i guess with having a uh, really unique style is that it makes it hard to hard to say it wasn't you right yeah hard to pretend i didn't do that yeah <laughs> and you know like Ditko I mean, we love him and everything, but, you know, he at no point in any of his characters does he ever do anything that's kind of like sensual, right? right? Like he doesn't do anything. None of his stories are sexy. Even, you know, like the, you know, Spider-Man's girlfriends or whatever are still kind of prim and proper when Ditko's drawing them, right? Like, you know, Ditko does uh, a Betty Brant and early Gwen Stacy, but he definitely doesn't do Mary Jane, right? right? Like that's just not, that's a completely different kind of character that like you'd be hard pressed to ask ask Ditko to even do that kind of thing right and most of his characters have the, the the stories that he does have no romance in them at all so it's kind of funny to imagine him you know like working on basically straight out porn which you know suppose not terribly romantic either you know depending on your your attitude towards you know bondage porn but regardless <laughs> so uh you know Lee, uh, Stan Lee has now, you know, uh, 61, 62 is the time when Lee and Kirby basically start the Marvel Age, right? The first few successes out the door for it. Like Fantastic Four is a smash. Thor is a smash. Hulk, not so much a smash, but it's, <laughs> you know, interesting. And then, right, like, so they're, they're two for three in, in hits uh, as far as uh, uh, characters going out. And Martin Goodman is definitely pushing Stan to make more superheroes, right? Like, the superheroes are what's selling. This is great. We should get rid of all these cowboys and horror and all this other crap that you're doing. Do more superheroes. And so Lee and Kirby sit down to work on a new superhero. And variously at different times, as you like read the notes going back and forth between them, which you can get, they're you know they're they're available, they were saved. Uh, the character is either called Spider-Man, all one word, right, no hyphen, or the Silver Spider, is the other name that they kind of like toss around possibly for the use of this character. And the Silver Spider or Spider-Man would be a teenager who would find a magic ring. And the magic ring would give him insect powers, right? It would let him climb up walls and, and that sort of thing. Okay. And Kirby drew several sample pages of what this character would look like uh, and sent them to Stan Lee. And Stan was like, I don't think you're getting it, Jack. I mean, these, are, these characters look great. They're really interesting. But this isn't the kind of thing that I want. I want a character who looks like a teenager. Right, I want a character who looks like he's an ordinary guy, and your guy has just got too many muscles. He looks too cool. He's too handsome. His, you know, comma, his costume is just too obviously, you know, super heroic. Right, right. and so he turns to uh, uh, Ditko and sends Kirby's art to Ditko and says, "Tell me what you can do with this character." And Ditko points out, because he's worked for uh, Archie at this point, that, okay, first of all, 
magic ring and insect powers is already a shtick that another superhero has at Archie Comics, right? The fly has basically already has the story. So we should get rid of the magic ring. And he then kind of like rewrites the concept of the character and does the redoes the design. And so he follows Stan's request to say, okay, make him smaller, make him thinner, make him more kind of like agile looking and everything. And uh, Stan's version or Jack's version of the character is carrying a gun to like shoot his webs and stuff. And Ditko's like, that's dumb and doesn't look good anyway. What if his like, you know, the, the webs that he shot like came out of his body somewhere came out of his wrists or something the way that a like a like a spider actually does and kirby's version of the character just has a uh, a, a robin style mask right it just covers over the eyes and ditko says well the whole point of this character is that he's a kid he's kind of a baby face why would he like go around showing most of his face right like that would kind of give away the deal he should cover his entire face right and then we'll give him like really interesting eyes on the mask and most of the expression the emotion that we can like put into the character we will do just by kind of like changing the shape and the location and the you know the 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 you know what he's doing with his eyes that will be the storytelling part of his face and everything else will be completely blank and he'll be a mystery man you know uh, uh, a part of that right and he looks at the kirby thing he says well you know kirby's version of this costume the guy's got boots on Right. Well, that doesn't seem like how can he climb walls with these like big heavy boots on? How can he even feel the wall? Right. Like we should give him, you know, like uh, uh, different kind of boots that are like clearly just like skin tight. Right. That you could like, you know, see how his 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 powers uh, would allow him to like, you know, stand sideways on a wall, uh, you know, through these really like thin boots instead of like the big, thick, you know, Kirby style boots that he would do. So he basically redesigns the character from the beginning goes back to Lee with it. Lee loves it. And they write a story for him. Uh, the comic that they wind up putting him in uh, had been called Amazing Fantasy. And Amazing Fantasy had not sold very well and was in danger of being uh, canceled. And Stan wanted to keep it. He thought it was a good idea for an anthology. And he was like, okay, well, you know, maybe the problem is we're not getting the right audience for this. So I'm going to change the title from Amazing Fantasy to Amazing Adult Fantasy. And we'll do these kind of like more realistic, more kind of like, you know, grown-up stories in them. And oh, incidentally, by the way, I have this weird superhero story. I'm going to put this in and this superhero story is going to be like weirdly realistic. Right? Instead of everything, you know, like fighting uh, you know, crazy alien monsters from outer space, he's gonna deal with like day-to-day -day problems. And he's gonna have, you know, like uh uh, you know, his old aunt that he needs to keep uh, you know, keep safe, and he's gonna worry about his secret identity, and he's gonna have all these issues, and he's mostly just gonna fight ordinary criminals. And, you know, uh that that goes out famously August 1962 amazing adult fantasy number 15 goes out the door and it sells phenomenally well it goes like way to the other side right like not only does it outsell anything else that uh, um, you know amazing fantasy had done uh, it now basically convinces goodman wait the spider-man is the hit of this right like the heck with your you know putting him in this anthology title we need spider-man to have his own comic 
And so the first few issues, it's replaced in the line by The Amazing Spider-Man. And the first few issues of The Amazing Spider-Man, if you read them, they each have two stories in them. And that's because they had pre-written all of these thinking it was going to be in an anthology title, right? So they only had like eight pages to work with. Mm -hmm. So the first few issues of The Amazing Spider-Man each have two eight-page stories plus a couple of feature bits in them just to fill out the, the, the page count because that's what they had done at the time. Um, so if you like go back and read them, it's not until like Amazing Spider-Man number four that there's only one story in the comic. Like Kirby, Ditko loved what they wound up calling the Marvel method, right? He was, you know, he and Stan would sit down, talk about a plot. Ditko would go away, draw it pretty much, you know, entirely, right? Bring the pencils back to Stan, who would then kind of like go through and do all of the 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 fill-in work, right? Where we would do all of the dialogue, all of the, you know, everything, the panel descriptions and that kind of thing. And then it would go off to be inked uh, and colored. So Kirby at the time was used to working that way and was used to Stan taking the credit as the writer, you know, for this because that's, you know, credit had not really been something that Kirby was terribly concerned about at that point. Ditko was kind of annoyed that all of the you know first pages of those Spider-Man comics said you know like written by Stan Lee, drawn by Steve Ditko, because Ditko's like I did the plot for this right like I did more than half of the writing of of this comic. Why am I not getting credit for that? And it took about two years of Ditko complaining and arguing with Lee about this before Lee started giving him credit as co-plotter. It would say co-plotted Lee and Ditko, written by Lee art by Ditko, right? Okay, uh, that makes sense. Yeah, and he was Ditko was the first Marvel artist to insist on getting that, right? Even though all of the rest of them were working the same way, Ditko felt very strongly, especially that, you know, like he's doing mo more of the work in actually doing the character, you know, portions of this by, you know, scripting. Like Ditko was the one who would they'd sit around and they'd come up with a villain and like Lee would give him like a name and like one line about him. And then Ditko would go off and come back with Dr. Octopus, right. Yeah. Or come back with Electro or the lizard or Sandman or all of these other like really interesting bad guys that became, you know, like the Spider-Man rogues gallery, right. That there's a great bunch of these like early characters. And, and Ditko's like, I made all of those guys at best Lee named them. Right. You know, I did all the work on, on designing them. Why am I not getting this credit? And so this is kind of the beginning of Lee and Ditko fighting with each other. Right. Um, they disagree about pretty much everything. They disagree what makes a good story. They disagree about politics. They disagree about pop culture. They disagree about everything. Um, but between them, with all of these disagreements, they create a superhero who is unlike literally anybody who's existed before, right? Uh, Spider-Man is the story of the reality of the Marvel Universe. He's a troubled adolescent. He has ordinary problems that then crash into extraordinary ones, right? He's got homework. He's got money problems. He's got girl problems. He's got job problems, that kind of thing. Um, and also, he's got supervillains. These crazy, monstrous supervillains uh, who mostly seem to have like a personal connection to Peter himself, right? Like Peter's school teacher and the father of his best friend and all of these other people turn out to be supervillains, mostly because uh, Ditko liked the color 
clash, many of them are either purple or green or both, right? Because that looked good up against the blue and red of Spider-Man's costume. It was it was it was a good coloring thing to put them in the same panel together, which is why you, there's so much green uh, in, in in the Rogues Gallery of Spider-Man, right? Right. That makes sense. So Spider-Man is, of course, once again a hit. Right, you know, Kirby's doing all of the uh, Fantastic Four and, and Thor. Hulk has gotten canceled pretty much by this point. Uh, Ditko did one issue of the Hulk, did literally the art on the last issue of the Hulk because Kirby had pretty much given up on it at that point. Um, and Kirby has now moved on to creating other stuff, right? So while Kirby is doing, uh, is creating uh, the X Men and starting up uh, the Avengers. Lee goes back to Ditko and says, hey, you know, if you've got another superhero in you, let me know. This would be cool, right? Mm -hmm. So Ditko, without Stan at all, basically creates a new superhero for an anthology comic that they were working on called Strange Tales. And in Strange Tales, Ditko basically creates uh, Doctor Strange. Mm -hmm. Doctor Strange, when Ditko is doing him, uh, and Lee totally cops to this. Lee, Lee talks about it in his in his writings later. Um, that uh, Doctor Strange had no origin. He had no first name because Ditko didn't care, and he was clearly intended to be Asian, right? Like if you look at the, the 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 penciling of those first couple of issues for it, Ditko clearly thinks that uh, Doctor Strange is Chinese, right? Or at least Asian, how like ethnically. Right, which Stan was just like, yeah, no, we can't do that. That's the the sixty uh, <laughs> three. The world is not ready for that. Make mm. him white, right? Um, and Ditko very much intended his name's going to be Stephen, and uh, I'm going to give him an origin. He used to be a surgeon, and then his hands got messed up, et cetera, et cetera, and goes through the whole you know creation of the Ancient One, and basically creates the story of Doctor Strange. So once again, you can kind of make the argument. They weren't really working together, but they each wound up kind of creating half of the character, right? So it's a it's a it's a pretty fair fifty fifty you know chop between them. Yeah. Ditko, once Lee has done that and kind of like satisfied himself that this guy actually now fits in the world of superheroes, Ditko is once again kind of off on his own doing the plotting. And these stories are just amazingly psychedelic. They draw a college-age crowd way more than any other Marvel title, except maybe Thor, which also had a pretty college crowd, right? Uh, these just kind of like intensely psychedelic stories about magic and demons and other dimensions, and this just flipped out art of, you know, like these uh, landscapes and spacescapes that are all geometrically weird and have these amazing, you know, colors to them. Um, Pink Floyd literally put Doctor Strange on an album cover, right? Like this guy was a hero to like the early hippies, right? To the, you know, to this. Ken Kesey was Doctor Strange's biggest fan, <laughs> right? And like brought Doctor Strange comics, you know, like on his road trips and stuff. Um, and fans assumed that at least Ditko and probably Lee as well had to be heads, right? <laughs> as far as they were concerned, they had to be taking amazing amounts of drugs to tell these stories. And of course that could not have been farther from the truth, right? Like neither took any drugs, neither did Roy Thomas or any other early people working on him. It's probably the first actual user of drugs at Marvel was probably Steve Engelhardt. <laughs> you know, like none of the rest of them did. Um, Lee was like, you know, like a bourbon and cigars guy, right? And was considerably older than the college crowd that loved 
uh, uh, loved Doctor Strange. And Ditko could not have been less of a hippie, right? Ditko was a very straight-laced, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, buttoned-up kind of guy uh, with an ever-increasing interest in, like, the work of Ayn Rand, right? He was very right-wing. He was very, uh, you know... Uh, very much against the whole concept, you know, all, all of the peace and freedom, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and yet he was still capable of, you know, like creating these stories that, that, that brought this kind of awareness. Uh, Ditko did a few Ironmans while he was there for it. He did an eight-issue run on the Hulk when they brought the Hulk back the first time. Oh. Uh, the Hulk had shown up as a background character in other people's stuff, right? Like he'd been in the Avengers for two issues. He'd fought the Fantastic Four. Like they hadn't given up on him as a character, uh, but you know, he didn't. He he didn't seem like he could carry his own title. So they put him in Tales to Astonish, where he was splitting the title with Giant Man, right? And so he would get like a a half issue story. And Ditko did the first eight issues of those. In that run, he created the leader as the Hulk's main bad guy. And he made this huge contribution to the whole character that a lot of people forgot and uh, haven't given him the appropriate credit for it. Uh, when when Kirby did him those that first run, Bruce Banner turned into the Hulk at night, and that was it. Right, like when the sun went down, he turned into the Hulk. Hmm. Um, and then later in the additional stories, Bruce Banner turned into the Hulk when he was exposed to radiation. Right, like he needed to actually, like you know, stand in front of a machine and get bathed in radiation to turn into the Hulk. Right, it's Ditko who is the first writer who says, "You know what? Banner turns into the Hulk when he's pissed." Banner, Banner is is uh, you know like a character with a lot of like repressed anger, a lot of rage, a lot of kind of you know like issues in dealing with anger, and the Hulk is that coming out. Right when Banner gets too excited, when Banner gets too worked up, he turns into a monster. That's Ditko's creation. Neither Lee nor Kirby had anything to do with that part, and that's the part of the Hulk that we love. Right, that's the most kind of like single most important piece of the Hulk as a character is that concept, and it didn't exist for the first two or three years that the Hulk existed as a character. Well, no, no wonder they kept canceling the the comic. Right. Yeah, he's just not that interesting a guy, right? Like he was kind of this Wolfman kind of character, right? He's not a terribly interesting werewolf. Yeah. No, he's not. Ditko made him interesting, right? And Ditko gets no credit for that historically. It's huh. ridiculous. If you go back and look at it, that's you know, Ditko had uh, had had was the one who gave him that that concept. Yeah. So Ditko is now, you know, churning out two different regular titles. Plus, he's still doing the occasional, you know, like horror thing over in, in Strange Tales. And he's picking up these little bits of other people's comics, right? He's doing his bit of the Hulk. He's doing his little bit of Iron Man. Um, and he and Stan Lee have just basically given up on talking to each other, right? Like Ditko comes in, drops off his work. They aren't even doing their kind of like traditional early, uh, you know, plotting meetings, right? Like Ditko is basically sending him art unsolicited and Lee is figuring out what to do with it and writing after the fact because they, they just don't want to talk. Um, there were rumors that still exist, but that were denied by both of them that Ditko was mad at him about plot points and stuff that Lee had written in Amazing Spider-Man. Um, there is a theory that people have, you know, like tossed around that the true identity of the golden Go of the of the Green Goblin was a thing that they were mad at each other about. Um, 
Ditko in this theory had set up Norman Osborn to be a red herring, right? He wasn't going to be the the goblin when they actually took off the goblin's mask. Um, and uh, Lee very much wanted the idea that the Green Goblin had to be somebody, secretly somebody that Peter knew. So when they went through issues and issues about, oh, who is the man behind the mask kind of thing, Ditko's whole point was that you were going to think it was this guy, but when we took off the mask, it would be a person you'd never seen before. Right, like that was kind of the, like the randomness was the point. It was supposed to be a stranger, and Lee was like, "That sucks. He should be a guy that you know has a reason to hate Peter as well as to hate Spider-Man." I agree with Lee in this instance. Yeah, well, but nobody can really prove that this argument ever happened. Right, right. This is the the theory afterwards. Both Ditko and Lee claim afterwards that that part is not true. That they weren't mad at each other. Um, they interacted so rarely at this point. It's kind of hard to believe that there was a serious conflict between them because like, when would it have happened? Right. They don't even talk to each other anymore. Lee would like plan out issues at a time in these like really broad strokes, send them off by mail to Ditko who would then return, you know, four issues worth of art to him. Right. And then Lee would put in the captions and the dialogue. Um, Roy Thomas suggests that Ditko wasn't mad at Lee at all. And that it was Martin Goodman that Ditko was mad at. Uh, because that the few merchandising royalties for Spider-Man that he was contractually due for using his art on buttons and t-shirts and posters and stuff like that, supposedly Goodman might have been screwing Ditko over on those. And from what we know about Martin Goodman, sure, that sounds plausible, right? You know, like mm -hmm. we can't prove it, but that sounds like the sort of shit that he'd pull. So, you know, that's okay. Maybe, maybe that's what it is. Whatever it was, uh, you know, Ditko remained, by all accounts, the politest guy in the office, right? Flo Steinberg was Lee's secretary for a million years, and he, she would insist that Ditko was the nicest of the freelancers that they worked with, that she worked with. He was kind of distant, but always friendly. Never talked politics. Never talked about all of the stuff that he was like, you know, getting into personally and starting to put in his scripts about objectivism and you know his kind of right wing politics. But that was never a thing that you would talk about in the office. That would be rude, right? He was very encouraging to young artists and to writers in person. Uh, Roger Stern makes a big point of crediting him in his early days. Frank Miller says he was the nicest of the professionals that. He worked with when he first started, you know, uh, breaking into comics. Um, he was prickly about uh, efforts to kind of like make himself a public figure, right? He stopped doing interviews because he didn't like how they came across, right? He was, he was uh, anybody who tried to kind of like, uh, uh, you know, find out, like, as far as he was concerned, everything he had to say about his work was in his work. And efforts to try to kind of like contact him, make him go or ask him to go to cons and things like that. He was borderline rude about saying no. Um, Alan Moore makes a point when he talks about like his early days with him that he and Ditko got along well, despite the fact that they are completely on opposite ends of the political spectrum, right? The fact that Ditko's art was about something at all. And he had this kind of like integrity made him admirable to Moore, even though Moore thought he was nuts. Right. Like Moore was just like, at least he cares about something. <laughs> right. You know, this is a, um, and right. And, and, uh, um, Moore showed 
did go some of the early Watchmen material about Rorschach and everything. And Rorschach was like, oh, yeah, that's not bad. Rorschach is like Mr. A, but insane. Right? Like, he couldn't recognize that that was more kind of like, you know, making fun of his characters, right? He was like, oh, yeah, what if, you know, he just saw it as a straightforward character who was just kind of like farther down the line than any of Ditko's heroes had been, right? <laughs> so, like, Rorschach, uh, Ditko couldn't even really kind of tell that Rorschach was supposed to be kind of making fun of him, you know? <laughs> um, but, like, Ditko was very much on the spectrum, right? Like, I mean, we would totally identify him that way today. He was infuriated by Lee's uh, marketing, right? Because it wasn't honest. It was dishonest for somebody to, like, go out all of the stuff that, like, uh, Lee would write about uh, that was clearly a joke, right? Like, about the bullpen and that sort of thing. All of the stories that he would make up and the goofy nicknames and, and all that stuff, like, pretending like there was this, you know, community of artists working together on it infuriated Ditko because it wasn't true, right? Like, it's, you know, no, nobody worked in the office with Stan. There wasn't a, you know, like, happy-go-lucky office full of, like, wacky people making comics together. And Lee's efforts to portray that just made him bug nuts. There is an issue of Strange Tales that Stan put this banner in the first issue of it. Like, Strange Tales had not been selling that well, and but Doctor Strange had gotten, like, this kind of critical acclaim early from what few places there were to get critical opinions at all, right? And so Stan put a joke banner in one of the issues that said that this comic has been voted most likely to succeed, and then jokingly put in parentheses under it, by Stan and Steve, right? Just one of Stan's throwaway jokes that he like wrote in two seconds and presumably would never have thought of again, except that Ditko was furious because this vote never happened. <laughs> And Stan's like, of course it didn't happen. It's a joke. It's just, it's just a dumb joke. And he's like, but no, you're lying to the public. I'd take my name out of that. <laughs> right? Like he was fear and Stan could not understand what this problem was, right? Like Stan was absolutely the worst possible boss for somebody like Ditko, right? Because he just could not get what Ditko was mad about. So he went back, Stan says he, he went back and changed it. Uh, in, in the actual like final issue, it says that uh, this comic has been voted most likely to succeed by Stan and Baron Mordo. <laughs> he like had crossed out Steve's name, <laughs> right? And replaced it with the villain from Doctor Strange, right? Be because he just could not understand what Ditko was so worked up about. Right. And Ditko could not convince him how important it was that Stan not lie about him, right? They just could not communicate on this at all. And so eventually, and kind of like, you know, inevitably, they had to stop working together. And I think that's pretty much where we'll have to, uh, you know, bring this one to an end and tell you about the rest of Steve, Steve Ditko's career uh, next time we get together. Yep. There's a lot more left to tell. Uh, thanks for listening. I've been Steve Tasker. And I've been Darren Watts. Have a good night. <laughs>